Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. Today, we're excited to bring you my recent conversation with Mark Suster, managing partner at Upfront Ventures, a firm that many may not know was founded nearly 25 years ago as GRP Partners. Mark joined the firm in 2007 and became the managing partner in 2011, where he helped architect the new era of the firm while concurrently acting as one of the lead voices for the now thriving LA tech ecosystem. This was a super fun conversation for me as we talked about a lot of things and covered a lot of ground, including building a generational firm, how raising funds is really no different than enterprise sales, and the interesting paradox that faces every venture capitalist today. Now let's get right into the conversation to hear all of that and more. I'm absolutely thrilled to have this week's show sponsored by Frank Rimmerman, who serve as home for over 500 VC firms for their tax and audit needs. They're also one of the largest providers of services for the emerging manager community. And as somebody that's worked with them for over 10 years, I can attest to the early commitment they made to micro VC when it was first getting started. If you're a venture firm in the market for audit and tax, be sure to give them a call. Hey, Mark, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Samir. I appreciate you having me. I want to start off with your career in venture. You had started at Upfront, formerly GRP, back in 2007. Before that, you were in consulting. You had spent nearly a decade as an entrepreneur. What was the mental model of going into venture? I know you had known Eve for a long time through his investments in your companies, but how did you weigh the opportunity cost of joining a firm versus taking on another operating role? First of all, I should tell you in 2007, it was incredibly hard to become a venture capitalist. Today, it sort of feels like everyone's a venture capitalist, aren't they? Uh, And it was really hard to become a VC. And I had just sold my second company. And I sold my company to salesforce.com where I became VP of products. And I actually considered staying. I was pretty close to staying and I was having negotiations with Mark. And for a variety of reasons, I decided not to stay at Salesforce. But at the time, what I thought is I would go raise money for my third startup. And I called Eve and I said, hey, I'm thinking about doing another startup. Do you want to do this again? And he said, have you ever thought about becoming a VC? And uh, I said to him, yeah, I've thought about it. But anyone who's ever invited me to do it has either said, come be an EIR or come be a venture partner or an operating partner or some other like non-core role. And at the time I was 39. And I was done proving myself. I had sold two companies and I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be a GP. And so I said to Eve, if it's GP, I'm willing to have a chat. And my mental model, Samir, was I felt like I could always go back to being an entrepreneur. I still feel that way because all you have to do is be willing to work for no salary and, <laughs> and start out with, with no money and no resources <laughs> and no sleep. And I thought, like, that's a pretty easy fallback. Let's see if I'm any good at VC. And if I'm not any good, then I can always go back to being an entrepreneur. But I just want to say one other thing why I thought it was the right time for me personally. I always tell people, if you love startup environment and you're young, I think the best people at what they do want to be on the court. They want the ball. They want to be on the court. You want to drive down the court. And with time running out, you want to take the shot. And that was me. I loved it. I loved the game. And at some point, metaphorically, I just found I wasn't as fast. I couldn't jump as high. I couldn't block and pick. And I just thought to myself, at some point, you're a better coach than player. And I thought I'd learned the game. I kind of thought I would be better from the sidelines and I wanted to see. And taking that metaphor to the next level. So you now are sitting on the sidelines coaching the players that are now creating these great companies. But this is 2007. 
right before the global financial crisis. And I'm sure as you're thinking about your coaching career, there's other options. You can look at other VC firms. What did you see at GRP? Let's call it GRP at the time, at least, that made you think, hey, this is a really interesting place to be. Well, let me start by saying what is important in any job is the people you work with. Now, Yves Cisteron had been on my board. Uh, I raised money during dot-com explosion 1.0. I had people on my board telling us we were going to IPO and be a billion-dollar company very quickly. Uh, I had people wanting me to raise lots of capital, hire lots of people. And in the midst of it, there was one voice saying, don't fall prey to all that hype. You're not worth a billion dollars. You're not worth $200 million. You're not worth $100 million. I had raised at north of $100 million valuation, which again, <laughs> that was a lot of money back then. Now it's a seed round. But you know, I, the, the, the pinnacle of hubris was I was invited to the private wine cellar of Bernard Arnault, who uh, is the owner of LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet, and Hennessy, uh, to drink private stock of champagne in Paris with the CEOs of Sony, with Michael Dell, with the CEO of Goldman Sachs. I mean, it was like 40 people in a room. And, you know, I was on the front cover of the top venture capital uh, tech startup magazine in Europe, and everyone's saying this is the next big company. And honestly, three or four months later, no one even being willing to return my phone calls once, you know, internet had crashed. Uh, but during the moment of hubris, I had Eve as this wide, wise voice on my board saying, Mark, cut your costs, focus on revenue, build a business, don't focus on the hype. And, you know, in my best days, he got me to be more rational. And in my worst days, and the, one of the worst days of my life was when we were preparing for bankruptcy. Like I literally sat with my top executives at a pub at 10 in the morning, drinking a beer at 10 in the morning. Uh, it was England, mind you. Uh, so that, that was more acceptable. But we were preparing for bankruptcy. And, you know, the partners from GRP called me and they say, you've proven to us that you have what it takes to get through a crisis we're going to write a check and get you through this crisis. And really, it was that Hanukkah moment. You know, it was like, uh, how did the oil last for eight days when it only should have lasted for one day? And I got through that moment and went and built a successful company that we sold to a public, publicly traded company. He was there for my best moments to keep me honest. And he was there in my worst days to keep me focused. And so like any career, I think it really is critical who you work with or whom you work with. And uh, I really wanted to continue working with Eve. And I saw that opportunity to do that. Now, the goal was for me to move to LA for two years. I was living in Palo Alto at the time, get the training I needed, get the mentorship, get the um, apprenticeship, and then go back and open a Silicon Valley office for GRP. I didn't ever move back, but that was the goal when I, st when I joined. I always think about firms. And if you look back the last 40 or 50 years in venture, one of the toughest things is to create a long-term, durable, multi-generational firm. And there's so many things that go into it besides investing. It's talent acquisition. It is ensuring that your brand and reputation with founders is there. It's ensuring that generational succession is there. As you look at upfront, and I, and I sort of, this is my own model of looking at the firm, is there was the period before you, right? And the eve era in which I know Eve is still part of the organization, obviously a big, big part of it. 
But there was a part before you joined. There was that next seven or eight years before the rebranding to upfront. And now this new era with Kara and others now joining the fold and Kara becoming managing partner. How have you thought about it tactically and take us through the inside conversations in the early years of you joining of how you mapped out how does GRP and now not out front become a generational firm? So thank you for the question. I would say there was the before Mark. Eve was incredibly successful investor. That's what you have to understand. People don't know that. But Eve was an early investor in Starbucks. He was an early investor in Costco. They actually took 20% ownership of Costco when it had three warehouses. Early investor in Dick Sporting Goods and PetSmart and Office Depot and Jamba Juice, P.F. Chang's, um, Ulta Beauty and Cosmetics. And they uh, were investing on behalf of what at the time was the second largest retailer in the world. It was the Walmart for the rest of the world. It's called Carrefour. Uh, It was originated in France, as you might guess, Eve is French. And then it spread across Southern Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, South America, and into China. But it chose not to enter the United States. It didn't want to compete with Walmart. But the U.S. consumer leads the world. So they wanted to learn from U.S. consumers. So they were investing in retail companies. Now, in 1994, they were on a board of Egghead Software, which was a software retailer. That, that's how you used to sell software when you couldn't download it. And uh, they were on the board with Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. And Paul said, you know, boys, you've had a nice run at this. Uh, well done. Good job. But there's no more big box. The future is all online. I'm pretty sure they said some version of what the hell's online. But they formed a fund to, to do online retail. That was the premise of our first fund in 1996 was online retail. And what did that mean? Well, it was everything from supply chain. So dealing with pallets and how pallets are delivered. Uh, They funded the first shopping cart engine today. Their Shopify, back then it was Interworld. They funded uh, early retailers like Beyond.com. Today you have a firm. We funded a firm 1.0, which was called Bill Me Later, which uh, eBay bought, PayPal bought. Um, for a billion dollars. We funded new ways of selling cars like True Car. And by the way, also funded the first ever sponsored search company. So when Google refused to do sponsored search, people don't remember this, there was a company called Overture and their website was called goto.com. And Bill Gross actually invented the monetization of the internet. And he did that in LA, by the way. Uh, he uh, He's a Caltech alum. He's on the board of trustees of Caltech. And when he went to a TED conference and said he was going to do a pay per search, he was literally booed. He was booed at a TED talk where he said he was going to have people pay for search. And then he tells this story is this kind of small nerdy guy came up to him as he was going up to his room to go to his hotel room and said, I think that's a really clever idea. Could I be a customer? And his first big customer, Jeff Bezos. And that was the guy who tapped his shoulder. So that was invented in LA, that model. Uh, But we backed Bill's company, Overture. And that was one of the early investments uh, we did. That's the origin story of what became Upfront. GRP actually stood for Global Retail Partners. And by the way, one of the most important things about retail, you know, it is 
including grocery, one of the biggest industries that exists. But one of the things about it is it also involves a lot of financial transactions. So we did a lot of fintech. We had a lot of success with fintech. And it's led Upfront's movements today into sustainability. So we're doing a lot in fruit and agriculture uh, products. So with Appeal Sciences, we're doing a lot in uh, fish sustainability with a company called Insect, Y-N-S-E-C-T. Um, and that's because Eve has this, you know, 30 plus year knowledge of the supply chains of how people eat and dress themselves. And, you know, we have great uh, brands we uh, invest in, you know, things like Adormi, which is now an enormously big company. And that's because of the origins. You have the, the origin story and you do rebrand though in 2000, I think it was 2013 or 14. 2012. 2012. So the, the rebranding happens at that point. You're managing partner. As you look at the landscape, this is post-global financial crisis. How did you map out tactically what type of firm you were going to be? Like, what are the considerations of thinking about it when you assess the landscape at that point? So if I say there's the Eve era and then the Merck changing things era, between there, there might you might call this little tiny period of time the Game of Thrones era. <laughs> which is like, what's actually going to happen? Um, and so what happened was I started blogging. I created a public persona. I, a lot of entrepreneurs knew me. Um, and then some of my partners were saying, oh, this cute little guy who all the entrepreneurs like, but leave it to us. We know the LPs. But as I started going to LP meetings with them, it turned out that a lot of the LPs were following me too. And it turned out that a lot of the junior staff in the LP meetings who were following me actually wanted to meet me. So I would come and pitch, but they would bring three or four staff who followed and read my blog. Um, not to pat myself on the back. That's just literally what happened. And um, what I realized was a lot of LPs were encouraging me to quit. And the reason they were encouraging me to quit is they loved Eve. He had a great track record. But they said, what comes after Eve? And they just weren't confident that I was going to stay. And they weren't confident what came next. And there wasn't a transition plan but I love working with Eve. I've worked with him for 21 years. He's been my mentor all along. He's my close confidant. He's a person I trust to ask hard questions to. So I brought it back to Eve and I said, the message I think I'm hearing from LPs, this is in 2011, four years after I joined, is that they want to know what comes after you. And, and I got to be honest, I think what they want after you is me. And, um, I think that I already am kind of running a lot of the day-to-day -day of what we do. And I think I would, you know, be suited to be managing partner. And why don't we do this together? Why don't we have this be a apprenticeship model where we do it together and I'll learn the kind of stuff that you've been doing. Um, and he signed up to that. And to be honest with you, all the partnership voted for it. Like it was unanimous. And so we had the transition. And here's what I laid out for LPs in 2011. So I raised my first fund where I was the lead person raising it in 2011. We closed it in 2012. I said, number one, I'm going to build a partnership of people who have been entrepreneurs before. I want people who have walked in the shoes of the people we're going to fund. Now, again, 2011, this is kind of a novel idea. It wasn't like no one was doing it, but it wasn't like persistent. Uh, so one is I want entrepreneurs. Two is I want us to be an open book. Uh, again, this is something that's persistent now, but like back then, a lot of people were close with information. And I was very public with the blog, along with Fred Wilson and Brad Feld. And those were kind of my mentors of being public. I want everyone to be open. What you see is what you get. We were WYSIWYG. 
we're going to build and invest in a brand. I had been investing in both sides of the table and Mark Suster because GRP didn't mean anything to me. And I said, I want to change the brand to something that I can invest in building a brand. We're going to move to where entrepreneurs are. So we were near Beverly Hills and we moved to Santa Monica where a lot of the startups were. Um, And we're going to be disciplined about increasing our investments in Southern California where we have a natural edge, right? And so we took our investment from uh, 15% of our portfolio being Southern California to 45%. I laid out the stall and I told people, this is what we're going to do. Now, a few brave people said, I'm with you. Let's fund you. And so I will forever be grateful to Michelle Daher of Daher Capital, who wrote me a $25 million check for $187 million, uh, sorry, $195 million fund. There was uh, Jamie Sparrens at Morgan Stanley. Uh, He wrote a $22 million check also into that fund. So the $50 million of $195 came from two people. What most people did is they said, I like the story. I want to see how it plays out. And so it took me 13 months to raise that. I got no's from just about everybody. I broke a few eggs. There, there was a gentleman uh, named Dan, Dan Fader, who was at a fund at the time called Covariance Capital. He now runs privates for uh, University of Michigan. He also bet on me. Um, but what happened was that fund up front four, which is going to be the best fund we've ever done, I think it has the potential to be a 10x fund, like re- really legitimately. And if you're interested, I'll give you what some of the big winners there are. But that fund, and they're going to be handsomely rewarded. Then when I went to raise up front five, I had this mental model of, okay, this is going to be a year-long slog. And it came together in less than five months. And we went from $195 million to $280 million. And by the time we went to raise upfront six, it took three months. And uh, that first one was really hard because people don't like to make a bet on something new or on change. I'm very, very familiar with working with so many folks that have started their own funds. And fund one the average fundraise is still, you know, about 16 to 18 months. And that's been fairly consistent over the last decade. And it's interesting to think because a lot of people wouldn't look at upfront as you ever had a tough time raising from LPs. It just seems like, hey, great brand. Everyone knows you. Eve had done, you know, spectacular during his career. Why were people viewing this as a reboot in some ways? But as you went through that first fundraise and you did have these two massive champions uh, that were check writers from the LP side. What did you learn during that in terms of telling the story? Like, how did you get over the hump in getting some of those people to be true believers? I would encourage everybody to read the book, The Righteous Mind. And it's going to sound bizarre that I'm telling you this when I tell you it's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. The subtitle is why good people are divided on politics and religion. Okay, that doesn't sound like a book on fundraising, right? Um, But what it does is um, it talks about the human psychology of how people make decisions. And for the most part, we are really just animals. We make decisions with our gut. And then because 75,000 years ago, our uh, size of our skull expanded and our brain expanded, we developed cognition. So we think we are rationally in control of how we make decisions, but we're actually not. Our gut decides and our brain rationalizes. Our gut is 
let's say, the president of the United States, and the brain is the spokesperson that gives the message of what the president decided. And the brain doesn't stray from what the gut says. And so he goes through, he's a professor, I think, at University of Virginia, and he goes through the psychology of why people make decisions. And he did throughout his career, he studied things like shame. And why do people, why, why are people ashamed, for example, of feces? And he goes through the psychology of why you're ashamed of feces. Uh, he goes through um, cultural norms, like why is it okay to eat a cow but not a dog? And he spent his career building these social studies of how people make decisions. So with that as a framework of your gut and your brain, I'll just tell you his metaphor. He calls it the elephant and the rider. The elephant is your gut and the rider is cognition. You think the rider's in charge, the elephant's in charge, okay? So here's what I would tell you. And it's the same for entrepreneurs, by the way, as it is for VCs. That's what VCs need to get out of their own way and realize that everything you think about what entrepreneurs should do, you should be doing, you know, you just like refuse to acknowledge that. And I'll give you examples in a minute, but here's the thing. If I send you data and you go through my data, unless I'm Sequoia, you're gonna say no. Because you have your your elephant hasn't bought into me. What you're investing in a new manager, you're investing in a narrative. What do I believe about this person? Do I believe this person has unique knowledge and insight and information and relationships? Do I believe this person has uh, the strength and the resiliency and the intellect and the drive to make returns? Do I believe they're going to be a good moral upstanding character? Whatever the attributes I look for. And you can't build that through numbers. You know, if that's why I tell people, don't, don't send a data room. Don't make a data room available. So what I do is I trade. My trade is you either buy into a relationship with me or I don't send you anything. So the very first thing I do is I'll send you the headline. You know, what are our headline returns and who's our team and what's our strategy in a deck? And then if someone says, oh, yeah, send me all your spreadsheets. I'll say, yeah, um, I, no problem at all. I have all the data you want after we have a meeting. Because what I wanna do is have a chance to tell you and have you interact with me and hear what our vision is, okay? Then after that, I send the next data pack. And then they say, well, but just send me everything. I want attribution. I want, you know, which partners have left the firm. I wanna know everything. I say, yeah, no problem. After we do a deep dive, and I wanna do a portfolio review where I can talk about what our ownership is, how the values change over time and what we think this company is gonna be worth one day. See, if you're not willing to lean in and understand the value of what we've built, understand our narrative, understand where we're heading, meet some of my partners, not just me, you haven't bought into me, your elephant is not signed up. So when you go to look at the numbers and you get hard questions about why did you lose $8 million here? I don't understand that, right? You might overlook, wait a second, you made $80 million over here. And so what you really need to do is focus on building a true relationship with somebody where they have rapport with you and then the numbers will tell them, they'll, they'll seek confirming evidence from the numbers, not disconfirming. It's the exact same how we react with entrepreneurs. We just don't realize that's how our brains work. But you know, an entrepreneur who comes in and just sends you their metrics, unless they are Snapchat that was up and to the right, you know, if you're up and to the right, you, you, numbers are fine. But for everybody else, which is 99% of the market, they need to buy into you first. It's a fascinating framework, and I appreciate you bringing up the book. A lot of managers, even whether it's fund one, fund two, fund three, 
have a really difficult time with this because invariably LPs do ask for you know all that information. They want to see the data rooms. And in many cases, it's after one meeting, right? You meet somebody, they say, hey, sounds interesting. Send me all the material so I can, I can dig into it. What are the markers that you look for, you know, during that meeting? So, you know, you send a teaser and you have the meeting. What are the markers that help you understand that elephant is bought in, at least from the LP's point of view? The data room is where a process goes to die. So I have on my blog, both sides of the table. If you type both sides of the table, data room, you'll see I've written a blog post on this. And here's why. Once I've said the data room, you don't need anything from me. And you probably aren't going to read it because you've got 15 other managers you're seeing. The kind of arrogance of venture capitalists when they go to raise capital is you go in and you pitch an LP and you had a great meeting, right? Like that was probably legitimate. They really felt good about that meeting. I call it the love decay. So if you think of an X axis as time and a Y axis as love, when you meet someone in person, if you had a good meeting, I'm sure it was legitimate. Your love quotient was really high. Six weeks later, you're like, oh, that they loved me. They loved our story. They loved everything. But six weeks later, they've seen 28 other managers, and probably some of them were doing real estate and distressed assets and you know China funds and all this shit. And your little VC self-important world, they don't remember you just like you don't remember entrepreneurs. And they're like, that Suster guy, he was the guy, was he the guy with gray hair? I can't remember if he's in San Diego or maybe he was in Austin, right? Like and then fast forward three months, they're like, uh, up front, up, upstart, up. What was the name of your fund again? Right. And you need to think like that and stop being so self-important. So what you need to do is create ways to engage people over time where they're getting value out of your interactions. You're providing value to them, just like entrepreneurs would do with you. You need to think about how I get on your radar screen and authentic ways throughout. And over a period of time, I build a relationship with you. My only goal is to find another way to get you on a Zoom call or in person, because then I push the love quotient higher, right? And that's the same with entrepreneurs. Like if entrepreneurs get back in front of you, like, man, I knew I loved that lady. I knew she was really smart and I just forgot about it and blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of how I think about it. Now, how do you respond when somebody asks you for data and you're not going to send it? I think you need to be self-confident about yourself and say, if you really believe you can raise money from anyone, then have the self-confidence to go back and say, I know you want my, you know, whatever they want, my DPI, my net IRRs. I know you want all my spreadsheets. I know you want to know my net cash flows deal by deal. I got all that. I promise you, I will send that to you. The reason I don't send it now is in my experience, if you don't take the time to understand individual portfolio companies first, you're not really bought into the process. So I like to think of this as a trade. If you will grant me time, and I really hope you will, if you'll grant me time to walk you through the portfolio and I'll walk you through the details of everything, right after the meeting, I'll send you what you're asking for. If they say no, I promise you they were going to say no anyway, because if they won't engage in understanding you and your portfolio, they're not going to engage from your spreadsheet. It's, and just think like about how VCs love to shop entrepreneurs and get all their data because it becomes useful in other companies they look at, which I hate that people do that, but they do. LPs are no different. They might as well get all your return data so they can aggregate it across everyone and look at what everyone's doing. And don't be that sucker. It is a tough thing to balance, you know, especially if you're a near manager and you have these LPs and invariably it's easy to get happy years and say, just because I had a good meeting with somebody, that means it's likely that they've already bought in, they're going to invest. And if I reach out to them six weeks later, 
it's going to be a yes. And you're right. They have their day jobs. They have other people they're meeting and things happen and, and mind share atrophies. But this is the thing is you need to think of fundraising as a sale. You're selling ownership in your fund. You're selling a stake in your fund. And that's what they, they're buyers of that. That's what they want. They have dollars and they want to put those dollars to work, right? So you need to think of it that way. And therefore, you can begin to think of it as a funnel. A first meeting is top of funnel. Everyone loves top of funnel. I think VCs waste way too much time in top of funnel. And I'm going to tell you why. Top of funnel is easy. Everyone loves a meeting. They love to have a chat. They love to learn about you and hear your stories and all the kind of bullshit, right? Middle of funnel is really hard. Because an LP who's taken one or two meetings with you, now what do I do? How do I get you more engaged? How do I get you spending more time? How do I get you reviewing stuff? Like middle of funnel's hard. And bottom of funnel where they're like going to committee and preparing the documents and doing all the things that they need to do. That's really time consuming. And so I always think of it as a bit like I lost my keys in the dark, but I look in the light because it's easier. Uh, people at mid funnel, when things get stuck, they just spend more and more time with new top of funnel stuff. And you need to develop mid funnel strategies. And it's hard. And I have a ton of mid funnel strategies, but you need mid funnel strategies. And you need to put disproportionate amount of time in the mid funnel because that's where you convert. In many ways, it does sound very much like a big enterprise sale. You're building a pipeline, you're building a relationship, and you need to figure out what the other person cares about, understand those signals and manage that middle flow, right? In terms of how do you turn something from the top of the funnel to an ultimate transaction? Exactly right. And enterprise sales is the way to think about it. So what would you look for if you were doing an enterprise sale? You'd want referenceability. You'd want somebody lobbying them, right? So you'd want inbound your uh, references lobbying them. You'd want to understand their entire organization. It's not one person at an LP who makes the decision. It might be six or seven. Do I have a champion? Is there anyone against me? What else might they be buying? And you need to think like that. Like, what does their budget look like for the year? But I always say there's three rules in any sale. Why buy anything? Why buy me? And why buy now? Why buy anything? If someone wants to go out and sell a watch to somebody and that person just doesn't value a watch because they take their time from their phone and they they're bought into the idea that you shouldn't have a watch you're wasting your time so why buy anything is are you in the market for a watch now in vc world it's like if i have a 50 million dollar fund and your minimum check size is 25 you know i'm not buying your product (laughs) you're not in the market for that product so the most important thing in why buy anything is qualify, qualify, qualify. If you're a $75 million first-time fund, if you're a $30 million first-time fund, find all the relevant people who raised 30 and $75 million funds over the last five or six years, get access to them, get advice from them, and find out which funds back them because those are buyers of that product. The second thing is why buy anything? Like if I sell Rolex watches to someone who wants to spend $200, I'm wasting my time. But the same thing is also true. If I go to someone uh, who you know wants to buy a $5,000 watch and I have a Timex, it doesn't matter how good my Timex is, I'm selling to the wrong person. So why buy anything is about target customer. You need to be religious about that. The why buy me is differentiation. I call it USP, unique selling proposition, unique. 
your uniqueness, every freaking VC is like, oh, we have a good methodology and process and data review and we move through the pipeline and all this stuff. You think every other VC isn't saying that? Have a really, really hard you. Okay, I'm going to give you upfront to you. We're LA. 45% of our deals are Santa Barbara to San Diego. Now, by definition, the majority of our dollars are outside of LA. We are not a regional VC. We are not. We do a lot in Silicon Valley, a lot in New York. We do a lot of cross-border in France and in the UK and Israel, uh, Northern Europe. But not many funds have 45% LA. So what I say to people is, if you're looking for your eighth fund, your ninth fund, your 10th fund on Sand Hill Road or South of Market, I'm the wrong guy. But if you want a diversified portfolio and you want to get an underlying data set of great portfolio companies that are probably not in your portfolio from Sandhill Firms, I think I'm a good bet. Why? Who else did the seed round at Appeal Sciences now worth more than a billion dollars? Who else did the seed round at Ring sold for more than a billion dollars? Who else did the seed round at Goat now worth a couple billion dollars? Who else did the seed round of Parachute Home like? also become an enormously big company. Who did Maker Studios sold for $670 million? Those are all Southern California companies, and they don't have a lot of NorCal VCs in them. We love NorCal VCs, but my point is for an LP, you get differentiated deal flow. Now, if I say that to a buyer on why buy me, there's a chance that some people will say, I don't buy the premise. I'd rather just back Silicon Valley firms that fly down, right? That's okay. But by having a hard you, and being willing to stand for my you means I increase the probability that the people who believe in that you are going to lean in. So the third thing that in any sale is why buy now? And that's the thing that screws every sales process. Why should I buy into your venture fund now when I can just look at your next fund? And that's about scarcity. You need to create scarcity with a smile on your face. And the way to do it is to say, like, we're raising 50. I imagine the people who get in our first fund we're not going to increase the size much in our second fund. I don't think we're going to take new LPs in our second fund. My guess is whoever's in our first is in our second. So they have to feel like if they miss your first, they're going to miss forever. It's the same like if you look at an a investment in a tech company, you know if you miss the round at your stage, you miss it forever pretty much, right? And they need to feel that way. And most LPs don't ever feel that way. So you need to create scarcity. It's a great framework. And, and I really like the uh, the analogy to... A enterprise product sale. And, and, and as I think about products, so one of the things I often see about LPs is they're backward looking. They're looking at what happened in funds that were 5, 10, 15 years ago versus what is the product now and how is the product relevant in the future? And a, a key element of that is not only is what you're doing, are you, is that superpower that you have, is it still relevant? And is the team around the table the one to be able to execute on it? And with this massive growth of seed funds, we've seen actually a lot of talent atrophy from the bigger firms, right? People leave because they're not being promoted to partner or they're not getting a real seat at the table. You have maintained a lot of great talent and you've done things like promoting Kevin from associate to partner, having Kara, who um, has a spectacular background to managing partner. Some of these things just don't happen at a lot of big firms, and that tends to create talent atrophy. How do you think about talent acquisition, retention, and how does this play into some of the things that you've done that might be unique to you that aren't widely adopted by the rest of the venture industry? 
I'm going to answer that in reverse order. I'm going to talk about retention then acquisition. What I think about retention is, first of all, you have to create opportunity for people. Some people want to be leaders. Some people just want to be great investors. And you need to understand the difference and you need to help them understand the difference. We promoted Kara to managing partner because she's an amazing leader. She's a leader of people. She's a leader in the community. Now, to be clear, we have a growth fund. In fact, we have three growth funds and we have seven A funds. And then we have the platform like upfront at the top co. I promoted her to managing partner of the A fund. So she doesn't have all the responsibilities of the growth fund, but of the A fund. And I point that out because the growth fund, maybe someone else on my team wants to run the growth fund at some point. Right now, I run it. Maybe someone one day would like to run the overall upfront and I can play an individual contributor role the way that Eve moved from managing the Topco to more of an individual contributor role. I mean, he's still my partner at the Topco level, but you know, he has more time to dedicate to discovering the next appeal sciences uh, or the next insect and less time having to spend on portfolio construction and pacing and recruiting talent. So I have to create leadership opportunities. The other is being generous on economics and being thoughtful about, you know, getting in front of other people tapping your talent on the shoulder saying, come join us because great people are always going to have those opportunities. Um, I think you have to create a culture where people feel valued and enjoy where they're working, you know, and they still feel like they're learning. I think all of us like continuous learning. So I think giving people opportunities to learn and to grow and to uh, succeed. Um, And then truthfully, even you could do all those things. And sometimes people just want to go do their own thing. And that's going to happen too, right? And so if they decide they want to do that, then you've got to find a way to authentically do it. Example, I would give you Hame Watt. So Hame came on as a venture partner at Upfront. We had a long discussion about whether he should be a full-time partner. He still wanted to do startups. And he's like, I like venture. I want to do venture, but I also want to do startups. So I said, okay, why don't you become a board partner and stay close to us? And eventually he said, I want to do a venture studio. So what did I do to retain the talent is I gave him $5 million to go build a venture studio. And we're now working together on funding some of his startups directly. But there was a time where I thought he would go full-time partner. So you have to also work with people in the way that they want to work. So talk about acquisition for a minute. I think not enough VCs think about edge. And I think of edge in terms of what do I know or who do I know that's differentiated from other people. Most VCs sit and wait for deals to be sent to them in their email box. And I believe in playing offense, not defense. So offense is knowing a topic better than most people and going out and searching for deals in that area. You're never going to have deals to yourself. Like if you are, you're in the wrong market. But I'd rather compete against eight really hard competitors than 80 really hard competitors. So if you're funding the next clubhouse right now, you're probably going to compete with 80 people because everyone knows Clubhouse and they're all saying, what comes next and how do I do that? But if you're looking at fish sustainability, you know there probably aren't a lot of people who know fish sustainability better than upfront ventures. There aren't a lot of people who know agriculture supply chain better than upfront ventures. So in those categories, we're going to have less competition. So that's edge. But edge is also based on people. What networks do you run in? And I think this is an understood concept, which is why people want to hire Uh, venture capitalists who spin out of Stripe or Slack or Dropbox or whatever, because you have those unique networks. So I'm always thinking about unique networks. Take Kevin Zhang, who you mentioned already. 
like Kevin is Harvard undergrad, focused on biology, worked at Boston Consulting Group, built uh, his career in the healthcare practice, right? Kevin runs in circles. He's also um, is originally from China, moved to the United States, I think when he was nine. He runs in different networks than I run. If you look at Aditi Maliwal, she joined us a um, little under two years ago. She, her background, she's of Indian descent, grew up in Singapore, uh, moved to the U.S. for university, went to Stanford, worked at Google, worked at Crosslink, built a focus area in fintech. She runs in different circles than I run. So I try to hire people who are all complementary in terms of the networks they run in. Like Eve does a lot of cross-border between France and the United States for obvious reason. He wants to build U.S. businesses but with French entrepreneurs or French product management. So we're all different in terms of the networks. We know uh, uh, Greg Bettinelli came out of eBay. No surprise that he's one of the best marketplace investors in the country. I mean, you know, he did Goat, which is enormously successful. It was partially his idea. He did ThreadUp, which is going public this week. I think uh, today, it prices today, goes public, uh, starts trading tomorrow. He had the idea early to back this team rally. I don't know if you know rally, but they've created a marketplace around uh, fractionalized ownership of collectible assets. But Greg spotted it before anyone because of his journey that he came from. So that's really how I think about talent acquisition is how do I hire people who are going to culturally fit in, be as ambitious and work as hard, have entrepreneurial spirit, are upfront, meaning what you see is what you get. Like they're, they're, they're not a black box. And uh, finally, that they run in networks that we don't already run in. So it's additive rather than overlapping. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's very clear. I, was, I know a, a number of folks that work at Upfront and certainly spent a lot of time thinking about this and how you built a group of people that have a very common goal and a very common way of doing things or a shared view of, of doing things, but come from so many different places, different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds and fundamentally bring all complementary pieces to the table. And, and I'll use a sports analogy. You know, if you're playing basketball, you don't want five point guards on the court. You want a great point guard. You want a center. You might want a center that's great at defense. And it, it, it's very clear that that is the same mental model you've used to construct this great team. So I love the way you, you explained it. It makes a ton of sense. So I have one last question, which is really zooming out. So we're sitting here 2021. A year ago, if you and I had this conversation in March of 2020, we would say, well, it seems like the market has fallen apart. We're just getting into this pandemic. The Dow had crashed to 18,000. Venture might go through a day of reckoning. And in fact, it's been the opposite over the last uh, 12 months with the, uh, the ton of liquidity you brought up, you know, folks like ThreadUp and, of course, the SPAC movement that we've seen. What is your view on where the market is more globally? And also, maybe more at a micro level, what's going on with venture, with the number of seed funds, LPs, you know, investing directly into companies? How do you assess the health today? To be in venture capital in 2021, you've got to hold two very conflicting ideas in your head at the exact same time. On the one hand, undoubtedly, assets are overvalued. I don't think anyone could, with a serious face, say that they're not overvalued relative to their financial metrics. That's true. At the same time, in your head, you've got to be able to see 
that companies are growing faster than they've ever grown in human history. And that's because of the pervasiveness of mobile devices, uh, the growth of Internet of Things, the fact that technology is becoming more uh, permeated through traditional industry. And so ideas that work, work faster and become larger than any companies in human history. I'll give you just one small example about where we think the world is heading is telemedicine. So telemedicine, like it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the future of medicine has to be telemedicine, right? Uh, but why hasn't it really taken off? Well, oftentimes with technology, it's about social change. It turns out that we as humans don't want to change that fast. So let's take the patient. So a patient might like to have telemedicine, but you know, do I really want to sit with a mobile device and hold it up to my ear and show some bump I have on my ear to a doctor? And the same is true for a doctor. A doctor thinks, God, it might be nice to be able to treat people without having to see them, but I don't know. It's not as good if I can't touch the lump behind your ear and tell you what I think it is, right? So, so you have the social change. And then you have government regu regulatory change, like governments like worried about all the rules. Okay, so, so COVID happens. Uh, I told you this story before. I was running and I ran into a steel beam and I cut an artery in my leg. And like Monty Python, like a Monty Python movie, I had blood spurting out. It was really pretty gross. And uh, I went to urgent care in the middle of COVID, which I didn't want to do, but I had no choice. And they uh, sutured it up. And they said, you might have to come back for emergency surgery tomorrow. It's so deep, we're not sure if we're going to actually have to go in and do surgery. And so they did a really tight compression. And they said, look, um, if it swells a lot in the night, you're going to need to come in emergency in the morning. Now you could imagine me not being able to sleep that night. I'm like, holy fuck. Like, is my leg like expanding? <laughs> is it getting too big? Is it swelling? Yeah. And I was so paranoid at like 1030. I said to my wife, like, should I go in? Should I have it be looked at? And she said, well, I think we have telemedicine. I think we can download an app. And I'm like, really? You know, I should know this, right? And she goes, yeah, let me download it. So I don't know, it took her like 20 minutes to find. She downloaded it. I, I don't exaggerate when I tell you 10 minutes after that, I had a doctor on a phone, on video, looking at my legs saying, push here, push there, da, 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 da. And he said, are your toes cold? And I said, no, my toes aren't cold. And he said, you're fine. You're not going to go in for surgery tomorrow. And I said, how could you know that? Like it just blew my mind. And he said, well, look. First of all, when you push down on your skin, your skin bounces back. And if you had internal bleeding, it wouldn't push back. You would have so much uh, liquid in there, it wouldn't push back. Uh, the number one sign of internal bleeding is your toes would be cold. Your toes aren't cold. It's pushing back. Trust me, you'll be fine. And I slept like a teenager that night. I know people say sl slept like a baby, but babies don't sleep. <laughs> uh, teenagers sleep too much. So I slept like a teenager and it just like dawned on me that we are going to go through the social change because not just me, not just my healthcare uh, provider and insurer that wants that because I didn't have to waste money going in. But think of the doctor who now can become a knowledge worker and isn't tethered to the office for all of their income, who can earn in the evening or the weekend or even on vacation. This social change is happening. So what COVID did is it brought forward three or four years of technology change into one year. Some of that's not going to last, but some of that's permanent. And so you've got to be able to hold these conflicting ideas, which is everything's overvalued, but the things that work are going to be bigger than any time in human history. And I think both those ideas are true. You know, the thing I always think about is like disassociating the financial markets, which tend to be transient. You're going to have peaks and valleys with the role of innovation, which is much, much more secular in nature. And I think you're 
spot on from the standpoint that COVID did accelerate many trends that were going to happen. I think the outcomes are going to be bigger. And regardless of what happens in the financial markets, if you're long on technology and you're long on innovation, and I I find it very, very difficult for people not to be at this point, given what we've seen, it is interesting because there is this massive capital supply that is fed by low interest rates, liquidity, private assets rising. And I do wonder you know, what that looks like and what that does for the financial markets. Look, Mark, this has been a, a lot of fun. I know we probably have enough for a part two, but uh, as always, had fun and appreciate you being on. Thank you, Samara. Thanks for having me. And I'm happy to come back for part two anytime you want. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Mark and Upfront Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes of the show. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.